Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Yeah, he pulls one down to Alonzo. Pete will take it himself. And the ball game is over. The Mets take the rubber game in Pittsburgh. They finish off a 5 and 1 road trip. The Mets have won 9 of their last 10. They get within a game of 500 as J.D. Davis's bomb of a home run in the first inning set the tone. And the Mets bombard the Pirates today 13 to 2. Mets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball hit out to left. Waiting is Jones. The Mets are the world champions. Here's the one-two pitch. Check him out. Steve has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground towards first. Champions. 
Here's the payoff pitch from Familia to Fowler on the way. And it's in there, strike three called. The Mets win the pennant. The New York Mets have won the National League pennant. Put it in the box. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, August the 4th. 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to send me an email, send me an email to the mailbag, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope everybody's doing well. Got a lot to get to. It's been a real fun week. This will be the third podcast within a week, and I wasn't sure, you know, if you guys were tired of me, but uh, with all the news and with all that's going on, I couldn't skip a Sunday, even though we had one come out, uh, obviously, midweek. Uh, what was it? Thursday into Friday, a podcast after we did the Marcus Stroman podcast before that. But it's that time of the year with the trade deadline, pennant races heating up, and we are officially in the dog days of August. And in addition to talking about the current Mets team, and there's a lot to get to, we have a, a pretty cool look back. Chris Donnelly, author, he's uh, authored a couple of books, uh, came out with a book earlier this year. I've been meaning to get him on the program. I, I probably should have had him on sometime during one of the Subway series, but our schedules didn't work out. Uh, but he has a book out that's not just about the Mets, it's about the Yankees, and it's called Doc Donnie the Kid and Billy Brawl. How the 1985 Mets and Yankees Fought for New York's Baseball Soul. Chris Donnelly's the author. He'll be joining me in just a little bit. We're going to get into the time machine and look back at 1985 and what could have been 15 years earlier, the first Subway Series between the Mets and the Yankees. So that'll be something, a little treat later on in the program. But we'll start out with 2019. And what's amazing to me as the Mets come home, after all that they've been through, after all that we've been through here on this podcast, and what has been in, what is it, 16, 17, the fourth year of this podcast, this has been probably the most interesting year out of all four. And that includes 2016, the first year when the Mets made that run late in the year. Uh, I just think it's been fascinating to see the twists and turns. And after all the optimism of the spring led to the disappointment uh, of May and June, the the nonsense with Callaway, Vargas, Tim Healy controversy in Chicago, the blown saves, the disappointments of the rotation, some of the brownouts that the offenses had, uh, the heart gut punching losses that this team has suffered, uh, the near sell off that everybody thought was going to happen, uh, then the deadline came, and then the Stroman trade and. All the debate, whether it be on Twitter, on this show, uh, where Metsmer, our old buddies over at MetsmerizedOnline.com that uh, unfortunately the, me and those guys had to part ways middle of the year. It was almost uh, like I was traded, right? And here we are on August the 4th, and after a 5-1 road trip, uh, the Mets see themselves tonight at three games out of the wild card with a doubleheader against the worst team in the National League, the worst team probably in baseball in the Miami Marlins. And the Mets have a real opportunity now not only to get to 500, but exceed it within the next 24 hours and put themselves in a position where as much as we've been saying, let's have fun, you've heard me say, let's have fun with this. They got Stroman. This is much about 2020. 
Let's evaluate this team the rest of the year. Let's not get too stretched out about the situation. The Mets have a real opportunity to make this a legitimate wild card race. And I know that there's been some jokes going around that this is the fake pennant race. And and look, I'd much rather, and I think the Mets very easily, it's not out of the question to look at what's been going on the last three, four months. They could easily be right where the Cardinals and the Phillies and the Nats are, and maybe even better, and be possibly looking at Atlanta. But that's not what this is about. This is about reality. And you can't cry over spilt milk, and you can't you can't do anything about the losses yesterday, but you can do something about tomorrow. And right now, the Mets with 55 wins and 56 losses, three games back of the Nats in the loss column, tied, dead tie in the loss column with Milwaukee and Arizona and San Francisco, a couple of games ahead of Cincinnati and four games ahead of Colorado and San Diego. Uh, they have a real chance to, over the next seven days, put themselves in a position where now this is real. Now they're 500. Now they'll be above 500. And I didn't realize, and I think Pete Alonzo had pointed this out in his little note on Twitter where they, I think he said something along the lines of they've been on the road two more weeks than home uh, up to this point. But the Mets have 63 road games after today and 48 home games. That's amazing. It's amazing how imbalanced to date the schedule's been. I don't know why that's the case. Probably interleague play. Uh, but the Mets have a real opportunity over the next seven games to really get this thing going. Uh, and away you go before they go on another road trip. And I, every time we've had these scenarios where the Mets start closing in on 500 and we start doing the math, something crazy happens. They have a heartbreaking loss. So they go into the, the offense goes in the tank or the pitching all of a sudden falls apart. The Dodgers series was a perfect example. There was where they could have easily gotten to 500 on that road trip when we were talking about the replace the Mets and all that other stuff. And then they had that horrible series where they kept blowing those games and those heartbreaking losses. The Mets need to go five and two on this homestand against Miami against the Nats. I know they have a doubleheader, and even though it's the Miami Marlins, those are sometimes hard to sweep, but it really starts tomorrow. It starts with the Grom. Who else would you rather have on the mound? And you go 5-2, and two and you go on to the next road trip, and at this time next week, you're 60-58. and 58. Now you really have something. And, and in that 60-58, in that you're potentially beating one of the teams in front of you, the Nationals, a couple of times, hopefully. So there's a lot to be optimistic about. Now, doesn't come without some bad news, and that is in the form of Robinson Cano, uh, who is starting to heat up over the last couple of days, had some big hits this weekend in Pittsburgh. I guess he's going to get an MRI. You know, Who knows what the strain hamstring looks like. I would anticipate him being out a couple of weeks um, but, uh, you know, even with that, I think this team really could still continue to go out there and with this rotation now, and I know Matt's had a horrible game on Friday and that's Matt's again, that's a fifth starter. Steven Matt's is your fifth starter. Uh, you saw Marcus Stroman and Kevin Kernan of the New York post wrote about this earlier today about how a guy like that, who really had a wild week transitioning from one team is never easy. Uh, here he is, he's doing it, and I think he had about a seven-day layoff or he's about a week ha- since he had last pitch or maybe more. And he was rusty. He was off. And he battled. He made that great play in the first inning, which really was the play of the game, that play at the plate uh, with Stroman. 
And that's the kind of bulldog attitude that this team at times, I'm not saying these players don't have it, but at times they haven't displayed it. And having someone like that in the dugout, on the mound, uh, you know, that's just great leadership. You know, and and all year you've seen guys like a. Basically, it's been Alonzo and McNeil carrying this club, and 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 these guys have have started to hit a little uh, valley. Maybe it's the All Star break. Maybe it's being in the All Star game. Maybe it's increased expectations. But now these other guys, like Cano, who did it up until he got hurt in the fourth inning, they need to start stepping up. We need to see more big hits from Wilson Ramos. We need Conforto to start rounding into form, and maybe he's getting further away from some of the issues he had with his concussion. J.D. Davis getting an opportunity now to play. A guy that I've had questions about whether or not he has any fit on this team. But, I mean, he's a guy that right now, if he's playing every day, I mean, he's a guy who's probably going to hit 20, 25 home runs, driving 85, 90 runs. That's a quality, big league, offensive player. Really is. Um and then you have the bullpen, and you have the bullpen right now. Where is anybody better in baseball coming out of the bullpen than Seth Lugo? And Familia, albeit he gave up a home run in the ninth inning today, but I can't believe that ball went out. Looked a little bit better. Gazelman looked better. Uh, Justin Wilson has started to contribute. Luis Avion is, uh, is shaky, but I have faith that he could get a, a lefty out. And then who knows if uh, Brody has anything up his sleeve and is scouring the waiver wire for some DFAs. I know. Later on, when we get to the mailbag, and uh, you know, you guys really uh, participated in that. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com without the G. I got a ton of great uh, notes, and we'll get into a bunch of stuff uh, in just a little bit. But here's a chance, and here's the amazing part. And it's really uh, you saw it on Friday. We have a Mickey Callaway has a chance here to erase. All the bad karma, all the bad things that have happened over the first year and a half of his tenure. And he for sure looked like he was a goner, whether it be in Miami after the sweep earlier, right after the chair-throwing situation when that came out about Brody. And I still think there's a chance that you know Brody's going to want to bring in his, his own guy, but Here's a chance for redemption. It's a chance for redemption for this team that has re- really not been treated well by the media. And they brought it upon themselves with some of their poor play. But if it was fairly reported and fairly evaluated, from day one, as you peel the onion on a lot of these players, you knew that this team wasn't as bad as what they were being made out to be. It was a, a, a big push by papers, mainly papers that are struggling with circulation and are struggling to get eyeballs because of various different reasons, that they wanted this to be a tabloid situation. They wanted this team to fall apart. They had their team in this town, the New York Yankees, that are going to be their playoff team. They had that already. They don't need to worry about it. Those guys are cruising. Those guys are going to be in the playoffs. We'll talk about them in October. They'll have their knives out for them in October in the ALDS if they, if they lose it. We want drama. We want the worst team money can buy. We want circa 1992 again. We want all of that. And and the Mets were playing into that. And all of a sudden, because it didn't make sense, because I said, this team is not that bad. Thanks to Alonzo McNeil, they kept dragging them along, dragging them along. DeGrom started to find himself. Now Syndergaard seems to be finding himself a little bit. Wheeler had a dominant outing. Uh, you've got Stroman in the mix now. It's in a huge upgrade over Vargas, who I still... 
I still think is underrated a little bit. And here you go. You have a chance to erase it all. And I'll, I will say I'm going to start to really see Mickey Callaway and these guys in the deep end of the pool. Because up to this point, nobody's really taking them seriously. Even Mets fans. I know they're taking themselves seriously. But now starting tomorrow, it's for real. Because you've pulled a lot of people back into this. And the last thing that this team needs right now is to come home and have a 2-5 and five homestand or get swept in a doubleheader by Miami, or revert back to some of the bad baseball that we saw throughout the you know, early summer and late spring. That's the last thing. And that's what, to date, we would have expected. Now, why is it going to be different? After that loss on Friday, and that's where I go to Mickey Calloway. I thought he mismanaged the bullpen on Friday. I thought I actually wasn't even talking about Wilson or Lugo, because I know that there's some challenges with those guys and using those guys consistently uh, because of their their health, and that's where they're a, a, a tough fit to be your your number one relievers. You really would like to have a familiar, a little bit more healthy, because he's more of a workhorse, a guy that has proven in the past uh, up until this year that you could go to him day in and day out. Maybe that's why he's fi- finally breaking down and struggling a little bit. But I would have went with Avalon with the lefties. I would have stayed away from Tyler Bashler. Tyler Bashler to me is Hansel Robles, and I know Robles is doing some nice things out in Anaheim. But that's a guy who just throws fastballs. Maybe he's figured it out. I haven't watched him at all this year. Throws fastballs. It's caveman baseball. Let me try to, you know, quick pitch a couple of guys. I'm not saying Bachelor does all those things, but that's he's a he's a hard thrower. And, and hard throwers like that who walk guys inevitably, unless they're perfect and their location is perfect, and Bachelor has proven that he cannot be like that. They're not the guy that you want in a high-leverage situation. You you really don't. So I didn't think Mickey managed a good game on Friday. We'll be watching that. If the players are playing for you and you're gaining some trust from the GM, you're managing up, the media situation since the Healy thing, they've really focused more on Brody. But believe me, the, the, the knives are out. They're temporarily put away. The knives are out. The last part of this equation where Mickey... Uh, needs to prove is can he effectively manage his bullpen? And this is a tough bullpen to manage because you got to really make sure when you use Lugo and you use Wilson that you're right. You have to be right with those guys because if you're not, you may not have them for the critical uh, moment the following day uh, because of the way that you know Lugo's playing with this UCL tear. It seems like something's going on with Wilson and his elbow. I don't know if it's tendonitis. I don't know if there's some tear there. Who knows? I don't think we're getting the full story. And if you don't have those guys, you're going down the Gazelman Familia, uh, maybe uh, at that point, Bachelor Road, and that's not necessarily the guys you want in the high leverage situations right now. It's going to be Lugo. The, the perfect plan is this. You get a lead. You get seven out of your starters. You go to Lugo in the eighth. You go to Diaz in the ninth. And I know that there's some talk about that, and I'm not going to get into Diaz now. That's going to be another segment that whether or not that should flip-flop. But that, to me, is the perfect blueprint right now to win ball games. Now, why should I be optimistic going into tomorrow's doubleheader? Why? Uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, because last night was a game that this team earlier in the year would not have won. It was a game where uh, Pete Alonzo uh, had failed in, in a big spot earlier. It was a game where, uh, you know, after a tough loss on Friday, you were waiting to see a weekend series on the road 
against not a great team, but a team that has been struggling and was due. Look, you figure the Pirates are what, like 4-16 and or 4-17 and since the break. They're due to start stringing some wins together. This was a team that was actually in the NL Central race at the All-Star break. And, and maybe they're a little fired up because of the fight with the Reds and the suspensions. And I know they were a little shorthanded, but still, they're playing at home. They've got some decent players. Uh, and that's a ballpark that at, at times has been tough for the Mets to play in over the last few years. You were waiting for them to lose that game. And they came back and won. And, had, and, and thanks to Ramos, got a couple of big hits. And then not only do they do that, they take the momentum and they totally pulverize this team on a Sunday. And, and that's exactly what you were not seeing earlier in the year. And even though the White Sox and the Pirates are not the competition that necessarily you'll see on a road trip where you go to Atlanta and Washington and, and Philly, these are situations where this team didn't excel at all earlier this year. They wouldn't go for the kill and go for the sweep. Uh, they wouldn't be able to stop. A ba- after uh, the spiraling after a bad loss. And we finally, for the first time, saw it this year. Now the next test, and this team over the last couple of years has failed so many tests, most every test that we put out there. But now they have a test, and they have it at home, a place that even when they were struggling, even when things were really, really bad, they still seemed to play well. They, they played well with guys like Carlos Gomez and Rajay Davis giving them, and, and Altair when he first came up. Uh, you know, Wilmer Font getting starts. You know, don't forget about the replacements week or 10 days. They played well enough to get through those games. Now they have, for the most part, their squad. Yeah, Cano is not going to be part of it. But let's face it, before this weekend, Cano was not exactly lighting it up. And yes, you would have liked to see a hot Cano because that was the vision that Brody Van Wagenen had in the winter when he brought him over. But you can continue to see this team and the foundation of this offense fall on McNeil, who after a, a, a little day off is right back where he's been all year and starting to show some power. And the real guy that needs to get back into it is Pete Alonso. Now, to Pete's credit, he's been slumping since the All-Star break. And and, and I, I remember I had Eno Saris on, and we talked about that whole post-All-Star break uh, home run derby thing. And let me tell you something. We saw it happen a little bit with David Wright back in 2006. I remember this. And I know Josh Bell is having some of that. And I know that Eno and the stat guys, and this is not a knock on Eno. I love him. It was a great segment he had on. Um, But I think there's a little bit of a drop-off when you have that kind of emotional weekend. Uh, Maybe he's getting a little bit tired. I mean, his OPS is is under 700. He's hitting 151 in the second half. That's not who Pete Alonso is. Maybe it's a a little bit of an adjustment from the, the big first half he had. The positive, I would say is that he's still getting on base. He's still walking. Uh, it's not a complete. I mean, he's been struggling over the, over this weekend. He didn't have a good series in Pittsburgh. He had a couple of at-bats that look more Pete Alonso, But he's just got to take a step back. He got a day off on Sunday. Get back home. I think it's a combination of a few things. I think he's trying too hard. I think he may be tired. And I also think that the league is starting to figure out, well, let's try something new to get Pete Alonso out. Uh, and that's inevitably going to happen. McNeil went through it. He's coming out of it now. Now you need Pete Alonso to come out of it. And if those guys take the next leap and they show you that they've been past that first real big slump in their first full big league year, the Mets could withstand Cano being out a couple of weeks. It stinks because if you had Cano in there, it takes so much pressure off of these guys. It really stinks. But, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, that's the two guys that this lineup is built on. 
those are the two guys that are the foundation now. And Conforto, of course. But Conforto's the third banana. Conforto, I think, does better being kind of like the third banana, contributing. The hub of this lineup is McNeil and Alonzo, and it will be over the next five or six years. And that's why when people say the Mets should rebuild those two guys, you want to leverage and really do something with those two young stars, you want to win now over the next three, four, five years because by the time you rebuild after a five, six-year span, those guys are going to be expensive free agents and who knows what happens then. So anyway, we're not going to get into that. We talked enough about that throughout the week. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Edwin Diaz, is he the closer? What's the struggle? What's the problem? Because I looked at it last night. I'm as confused as you are, and I wonder if it has to do with maybe mental more than physical. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Diaz trying to shake off the disappointment of the home run and put on the finishing touches. And Iona prep product Colin Moran, the final hope for Pittsburgh. He's gone 0 for 3 in a walk tonight. Diaz to the belt. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed strike three. Put it in the books. All right, we're back. Talking Mets podcast. And look, this whole Edwin Diaz stuff is perplexing because last night you saw a perfect example about Edwin Diaz in 2019. Looks dominant on the first hitter. Should have gotten the, the next hitter out. Blue pit. And and then he grooves a fastball that Marte takes him out on. And, and fortunately, the Mets had a four-run lead. But you also saw it in Chicago uh, when he had a big lead. What struck me this week about Diaz is, and I looked at the numbers, and yeah, the home runs are up and the hard contact are up, and those are outcome numbers. But if you look at his 2017 season, they're not completely out of line with what he's done in the past. So maybe last year was a career year. I know there's been some talk about overuse and what have you with Seattle. K rate's still there. Walk rate's a little bit higher, but still lower than it was a couple of years ago. I'm wondering, and I I really go back to the Chicago game that he blew the save and they won in extra innings because that game, another example of a game they probably wouldn't have won a couple of months ago, that game when he, when he hit the batter, and I can't remember who he hit, but when he hit the batter, Dar- or, or even when he walked the first guy, Darling talked about how it seemed like Diaz was pitching nervous. And Darling would know because anything that a pitcher's done on the mound or he sees, he's done himself. And I said to myself that night, if late July, early August in Chicago against a bad White Sox team, against a team that really wasn't hitting, if that's spooking Edwin Diaz, how the heck is he going to get big outs down the stretch? God forbid big outs in a playing game an LDS game or whatever. Let's not even get too far ahead of ourselves because this is going to be the easy ones now. It's only going to get harder. So we've heard some of the speculation from former teammates. I think it might have been Edwin Encarnacion said maybe there's too many distractions in New York, too much to do. Maybe it's nerves. Maybe that night, that was the night of the, uh, before the trading deadline. Maybe that was on his mind. If you're in Seattle and you're pitching you know, Pacific time, there's not a team in baseball, especially since the Mariners haven't been relevant, you know, what, 15 years or so. You might as well be on Mars getting those 57 saves. Now, it's still a big league ball club, so you can't just say they're 57 garbage saves that he got a year ago. 
And the numbers are tick- upticked. And I've heard, you know, maybe it's his, you know, positioning on the mound. Phil Regan's been working on him. He certainly grooves those fastballs. Is he tipping his pitches? Is he using a slider to set up his fastball? There's so many different things I've heard. All I know is this, and I agree with Andy Martino, and this goes back to communicating and really the evaluation of Callaway. Because if the Mets are going to make a run here and they're going to save Callaway's job, the only way I really leave 2019 to 2020 and don't touch the manager is if I think I have my solution long-term. Not just for next year long-term. Because if you want to win now, and Callaway shows, I think there was some confusion from Diaz because maybe Callaway had mentioned that he's becoming a little bit more fungible with the closer job uh, now and Diaz was a little bit taken aback by it which is not the way it should work he should not be hearing that through the media I will say sometimes I don't trust these these group of guys because they tend to like to make things more than they are and create some stuff Uh, I think some of that might be inexperienced because you have some very very uh, new beat reporters here, but I'm not going to get on their case on this because, you know, Martino even jumped in on this one. So this closer, if he's nervous, if he's having a tough time adjusting, he's going to need to have as much support from his manager. The other flip side to this is maybe right now, if that's what's happening, maybe the eighth inning would be better for him because psychologically, I've had closers on this program dating back to the old podcast NYBD days. I had Jeff Montgomery, guy that was a setup man, a closer, had that you know Kansas City Royals. Mark Davis was a um, the closer, came over there. Uh, and he said there was a difference. There's always a difference going from the 8th to the ninth inning, vice versa. So maybe Edwin Diaz needs a little bit of that. And, and it would be interesting to see if Mickey Calloway does that. And also, if he does do that, is he going to communicate it to Diaz so that you know, if this guy's having some trouble psychologically here, that it doesn't ruin everything. Because you cannot afford to not have Edwin Diaz. You don't have enough depth there in that bullpen. You can't trust Familia. Uh, Wilson's a guy with spot. Uh, Avilon is a lefty specialist. You can't do a lot of him. And then, you know, none of the young relievers have stepped up and shown that they can get big outs. So, you know, this is really important. This ultimately, now that the rotation may be settling down and and rounding into form, this is the most important issue right now, is Diaz. Can Diaz straighten himself out? What is the problem? Because the stats are all over the place. They're not all bad. They're not all good. But I also think those are outcomes. What's the process? You're hearing a lot of different things about the process, about mechanics. I told you I talked to a scout that knows him very well, says his mechanics get off all the time. Maybe that's what's been going on. The mechanics been off because he wasn't really that bad in April. He was shaky at times, but not. He hasn't been like he is now, which is eminently hittable and good for maybe a home run and outing. And if you have a one run game, you just can't have that. You just can't have that. And you don't want him to start nibbling with the slider because that's when he's going to walk guys, and that's just as bad. So this right now, when I talk about Mickey and Mickey being really now on the clock as can he save his job? Can he prove that he was the guy? that can bring this team to the next level, the guy that they hired a couple of years ago? Can we put aside all the nonsense and the garbage? And right away now with Diaz this morning, you're hearing some miscommunication where he's saying one thing to the media and maybe another thing is going on. This kid can't afford to have any more stuff thrown at him. He clearly right now is having that hard first year in New York. And I'll tell you what, he's not the first guy. 
and we've seen New York drive people out of town. You know, we're going to be reliving the 1985 season in just a little bit. Ed Whitson will be the first one to tell you that. Mike Hampton had troubles when he came over. Piazza, Beltron. I mean, you heard a guy named Mel Rojas? You know, he came over, he was already struggling, but uh, he, he, he became kerosene on the, on the fire when he was here. Now, I don't think Diaz is at that point, but we've seen some times where both he and Familia, and Familia's gotten big outs in this town, have reminded me an awful lot of Mel Rojas. So this is critical, this is interesting, and all I ask, whether it's the eighth inning, the ninth inning with Diaz, that Mickey handles this with the utmost caution and kid gloves because this is a valuable asset. Not just because they gave up Jared Kelnick, but because I think he's talented and I think they could use him. And I'd hate for him to get or give the wrong impression to the fans in the front office and then go somewhere else and be successful because of mismanaging or misreading who this guy really is. Let's take a quick break. When we return, your thoughts. Mailbag. First mailbag of uh, 2019. Something different that we're going to try. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. You've got mail. All right, we're back. Mailbag. Before we get to Chris Donnelly and we do our little uh, back-in-time 1985 season Mets-Yankees, let's grab some mailbag again. I appreciate everybody who sent me some notes. Uh, I'm going to try to rapid-fire here, try not to make it too long, because this is going to be a long podcast. I was just looking at the time, and I'm like, geez. I hope you guys enjoy going uh, north of an hour. I know I've gotten some critics of that, but when the context content's there, the content's there. I hate to, to cut it back, but... Uh, we're going to try to do this from time to time, and, and I'll, I'll go on Twitter at Mike Silva Media, and I'll say, hey, send me some mailbag questions, Mike Silva at TalkinMetsPodcast.com. No G. It's the old uh, New York accent there working, TalkinMetsPodcast.com. All right, let's start it off. Ryan Leach. Uh, Mike, love the show and all you do for Met fans and giving us both sides of the story, not just what the beat writers want us to know. I have two questions. Is there a reliever out there that has not worked out with another team that you could see the Mets take a chance on and see if they get lightning in a bottle? And two, do you ever see the beat writers of national media ever admit they were wrong if Brody's moves work to do something? Uh, don't think. Now, number two, no, I don't think they're going to admit that they're wrong with Brody. I think right now they don't like the way that the Mets are being built. They would like a more of a long-range analytical front office. They yearn, especially the younger ones, they yearn for that because they grew up in the fan graphs era. So I don't think that they particularly care for a win-now salesman, agent type of GM. As far as of this, um, I know, and I'm going to look for the other question because uh, Frank Mankin uh, brought up Cody Allen and Brad Brock as possibilities. So this really ties into Ryan uh, your question, I'll, I'll give Frank Mankin. I hope, and if I say your name wrong, I really apologize because I don't want to say anyone's name wrong, but just keep in mind. Uh, Brad Brock and Cody Allen, uh, both uh, are interesting arms. Cody Allen, of course, pitched well for Mickey Calloway in Cleveland. Brad Brock, I've always liked, uh, had some good numbers with Atlanta last year after he came over from Baltimore. Both of those cases, those are guys that the, the swings and misses and the strikeouts are still there. But the walks are significantly high. And I heard something interesting from C.J. Nitkowski on MLB Network Radio about how the average arm coming out of the bullpen, average reliever, is walking about three and a half or so per nine innings. And that's high. I mean, I like my relievers to be under three. And that's average. So I don't know if it's the new ball. Maybe that's with the grip. Maybe it's pitching away from contact because of the home run. 
but if Mickey Calloway is a guru, and he hasn't really proven to be uh, since he came here, it seems like Phil Regan has helped a little bit more than times than Calloway. But Calloway's a manager. He's not the pitching coach. Uh, those are both arms that I take a chance on. Uh, I wonder if, uh, if Allen is a better option because of his connection with Callaway. But to me, the real issue you have is the 40-man roster. You know, Some had mentioned Estrubal Cabrera now that Cano is out as a bench piece. Your roster is full. So unless you're looking to put uh, uh, a Nemo or a Kilome, who's the, uh, the kid they got from uh, the Phillies for Cabrera on the 60-day, uh, then you're going to have to get rid of somebody. Now, yeah, you have Tim Peterson and and uh, Brooks Pounders that maybe you could designate for assignment to make room. So there is some possibilities there. But if you look at that 40-man roster, you go to Mets.com and you look at that 40-man roster, it's going to be tough. Um, Philip Metz, M-E-T-Z. I hope if that's your real name, that's a cool name. Hi, Mike. What's your take on Rosario's development the past two months? Seems to have turned the corner offensively and has improved defensively to where he's not a liability. Is the long-term answer at shortstop? This really is a deeper dive that we're probably going to have to go deeper in another podcast. But I like the defense. It's a little bit better. I heard Tim Britton talk about on his podcast at The Athletic how he how Gary DeSarcina said that he's really working with him to take better routes to the ball. And it's not his range. It's his routes, which is also instincts. And I never felt center field was a good option because if your instincts are struggling at shortstop, why would they be better in center field? And really, if you're going to convert the guy to a center fielder, you've got to send him down to instructs, just like they did, like, like the Braves did to Ron Gant when they converted him from an infielder to an outfielder. They sent him down to low A. Now, I understand a different era back then. Uh, and he was a good hitter. So here's a guy that's just starting to develop offensively. You're going to start having him focus on defense. You're going to screw this kid all up. He's either going to figure it out at shortstop, and the kind of offense he's giving you now is probably not the hitter he is. I mean, he's not going to be a guy who's going to get you an OPS at 900. But if he's a guy that could get you 15 to 20 home runs, hit about 275, 280, uh, hit you know situationally a little bit better like he has, and make league average plays, I could live with him. I still like guys like Ho- uh, Iglesias from uh, Cincinnati, who's actually not had a bad offensive year. Those are my kind of shortstops. I like elite defense up the middle. But uh, Rosario is here. He's, he certainly has talent. And I think the question at the end of the year is, does it's, the work is there. From all reports, he's working. Does he have the ability to really um, you know, turn this thing around and, and stay consistent? So far he has. Uh, over the last couple of we- months, it's been better. We'll see. Uh, Maurice Zanner. Maurice, good to hear from you. It just seems there's such a negative vibe with the people covering the team. Any thoughts why? Uh, I think uh, it goes back to Maurice. Uh, you need to make it. Uh, you need to get attention in, a, in an environment where there's so much thrown at people. There's so many options. This podcast. This is a great podcast. I think. I wish I had. You know, spread the word. You know, if you guys have friends, tell them to listen to it. But it's hard for me to get pr- to promote. I was on Metsmorized Online uh, for three years, and after the whole incident with the Daily News, people are finding me for the first time. So I think sometimes negativity sells better. It certainly makes it an easier podcast. And uh, I think a lot of the younger reporters grew up in a TMZ generation that lends itself to that. Uh, and maybe their editors are demanding that. When you're, when you're in an industry where jobs are scarce and job security is even scarcer, uh, you got to make sure that you stand out. And controversy always sells, especially if it gives you uh, a back page. Uh, 
Brian Dobral Dobrolvalski. So, Brian, I apologize if I s- s- spelled your name wrong. In the context of the Josh Fields for your Danny Alvarez trade in 2016, why do the Mets not have scouting infrastructure in the Dominican Summer League? Why do they take guys like Austin Bosart, Ryder Ryan, or Will Tofe, who are system fillers, instead of taking guys with upside in the Dominican Summer League or Gulf Coast League? Mets have a robust Latin infrastructure and have found and signed a lot of good guys recently, and he names a bunch of them, including one of those guys, Luis Santana, that was in the J.D. Davis trade. Why can't they deploy these resources to scout the Dominican Summer League for higher upside guys as trade comp? Well, listen, maybe that's something that Brody Van Wagenen, who one of his jobs, and I guess we'll have to see, and, I, and I'd have to really dive into that and maybe call some people and get their take. Now, you know Omar Manaya, now that he's back in the, in the system, is going to be a big help there. But uh, part of uh, Brody Van Wagenen's job as an agent is to procure future talent. So you would think that in Latin America and, the, and, and creating better infrastructure with Latin America would be a priority. I do know uh, that we probably have some of the uh, questions that should be brought up with ownership and spending money. And if you're going to cut corners, you may be cutting corners in some of those obscure ways. Uh, that's fair to wonder about that. We don't have proof that that's the case. But look, there's this kid Alvarez that's hitting the hell out of the ball down uh, in Kingsport. I think Omar is going to be a big part of this. I think you really have to, when it comes to the farm system, I know that the talk has been about who he traded away. You've got to give Brody uh, at least a year to two years, at least, before probably more like two to three years because he just had his first draft before you start to say he does or doesn't have infrastructure in certain areas. I also want to thank uh, Jeff Cohn and Anthony uh, Gentel, Gentel or Gentel, for – for some of their kind words uh, about the uh, the podcast and about what I do. And all I'll say is this to all you guys that sent me uh, mailbags. I can't get to all of you. There's more, and I, this is who I could get to today because we got to get to Chris Donnelly and, and his book. Uh, I appreciate you listening. If you can leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, if you could spread the word, if you could let people know um, that this product exists and, and good reviews, if, they, if you mean to, if you want to. I don't want to ask you to do something you don't believe in. Um, that's the way this podcast will continue. And, and I appreciate every time you turn this thing on and spend an hour or more of your life. It's not just reading something for 30 seconds or two minutes. You're spending time out of your life. Just know that I appreciate that because um, that's what keeps me going, knowing that you really get enjoyment out of this and you're taking time out of your life. One hour out of 24 in a day is a lot to dedicate to anything. And the fact that you could be dedicating to this podcast, even if it's on a commute or the treadmill, means a ton to me. All right, that's this week's mailbag. We'll see if this works. Send me feedback at Mike Silva Media or at Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Let me know if you want to get more of this, if not on a weekly basis, but fairly uh, regularly because it does cut into guests and could make uh, the podcast longer. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Chris Donnelly of uh, the new book about the uh, 85 Mets and Yankees will be joining us. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Dwight Gooden has struck out 16 to tie his career high. He has won his 13th game in a row. It is his 13th complete game and sixth shutout of the year. His record is now 19 and 3. 8 to 6 the score. Pudler from second, Griffey from first, 
two men out. Mattingly takes ball one. machine now and joining me is author chris donnelly you can check him out on twitter at c donnelly 81 uh, and the book it's uh, it's a good one doc donnie the kid and billy brawl how the 1985 mets and yankees fought for new york's baseball soul it's brought to us by the university of nebraska press and chris is with us chris it's been a while and and as we talked about off air uh it seems like yesterday i was talking to you about some of your other work you've had quite a few books you've written about baseball and uh, the last one that uh, we talked about was the uh, classic 1995 Mets, Yan- uh, Mets Yankees Mariners uh, playoff series. So uh, you're at it again, t- looking back into the time capsule and uh, bringing a piece of uh, New York baseball history to the fans. Yeah, I'm at it again. I'm at it again. And thanks for having me on, Mike. I appreciate it. And as I mentioned off the air, the, that conversation we had was before I had kids. So it feels about 400 years ago. <laughs> so much has changed since then. <laughs> But but no. Yeah, yeah. That's all right though. That's all right. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I, I obviously I'm I make uh, I don't try to hide the fact that I am a Yankee fan, but uh, I enjoy writing about them and I enjoy writing about the aspects of their history that I think tend to get overlooked or hurt or have not been written about. I mean, uh, obviously we all know about the Bronx years, you know, about the dynasty years. But I like writing about sort of the stuff that people don't necessarily remember or look at, and, and that's one of the reasons why I went with the 95 Division Series. And it's kind of how this book came about. I was researching for uh, Baseball's Greatest Series, which was the first book, and just seeing all the chaotic stuff of the 1980s that went on with the Yankees, uh, and then recognizing sort of how the Mets were the opposite of that. The Mets were kind of chaotic, but in a good way in a much more entertaining way. And of course they were winning and winning has a way of solving everything. And I just thought this would make a really interesting book. And, and the original idea was to look at the entire decade of the eighties and follow them as, as the Yankees fell in the Mets rose. And I realized that could be a 2000 page book just with <laughs> everything that went on in the decade. So uh, I narrowed it down to the, the place where they meet in the middle, which just happens to be in the middle of the decade in 1985. Mets going up, Yankees going down, and, and here's where they intersect. Uh, we almost had our first Mets-Yankee subway series. No, and people forget about that. Yeah, you got 2000, uh, that's the actual subway series, and then you had the first uh, interleague subway series in 1997, and subsequently some of the great series in the late 90s, which at times I almost feel like, and maybe it's because I was a younger guy back then, it was almost like a golden age for me in my era of baseball. It doesn't seem the same now. In a lot of ways, but 85 is interesting because 86, the Yankees had a solid season and they may have been able to win the division, but they get overlooked by the Mets. And, and even though 87 and 88, they were in races, I think the Mets dwarf them and they get remembered more for the stunt Merrill years. But you're right. 85 is that season where both teams won high nineties. 
They both lost to clubs that you could argue they were better than in the Blue Jays and the Cardinals. And they each had a different dynamic. The Yankees were an offensive team. The Mets were a team built on pitching. They had stars. It would have been interesting to see if they actually had interleague back then. But, um, you know, what did you learn a little bit about? Going back into the time machine here in 85, you know, we know about Doc and, and, and 85, and we know about you know, Don Mattingly's huge year. But what kind of nuggets did you take away when you dived into this project and, and some of the things you learned about that season and about those two teams? Well, a couple of things really uh, stuck out to me. Uh, on the Mets side was really, and I'm not saying this to be disparaging of, of Mets fans or the organization, but it was really just how bad they were in the, in the late 70s and the early 80s. I mean, you, you can look at, you can look up their record easy enough, easily enough, and you can tell just by the number there how bad they were. But when you really dig into the numbers, it was kind of striking uh, to see when you have a guy like Walt Terrell, the, the pitcher, who was out homering half of the Mets infield, <laughs> you know, in, in 30 at-bats a season, and he was out homering them. Um, and what struck me while I was writing the Mets pieces of this book is how often I had to write the phrase, it was the first time the Mets had accomplished X since Y. I mean, there were so many things that they hadn't done in five, seven, 10, 15 years, whether it was hitting four home runs in a game or sweeping a team on the road uh, or sweeping a team at home. I mean, they were just so bad um, really from uh, after 73 to 1983 that it was striking how often I had to write that. Uh, and to to note that Gary Carter was the second Met all time to drive in a hundred runs. Uh, that just seemed wrong to me. I mean, I had to double check that a million times, but sure enough, 23 or 24 seasons after they come into baseball, Carter's the only, the second guy, excuse me, who, who's driven in a hundred runs, which was remarkable to me. And on the Yankee side, uh, as I was writing their piece, what sort of was driving me crazy is how often I would have to pause the, the season narrative. And by that, I mean the actual games themselves to write about whatever it was that Billy or George Steinbrenner or whomever said or did that day. Uh, and it almost got annoying because I would have to stop every day or every other day. Um, I mean, in terms of the season, not in terms of my literal day to, to write that piece of it. So rather than write about the game action, I had to write about whatever Billy said or George said, or what the player said in response to what George said. And it's, it's just crazy to think that this all went on. I don't think you'll ever see anything like it again, just because with social media and things being instantly reported and everybody has a, a, a camera in their phone, the, the kinds of craziness that we saw with the Yankees and even, even the Mets, even though it was a different craziness, it was, it was an exciting sort of party craziness. I don't think we're ever going to see anything like that again. I don't, I don't see how it would even be possible. No, and they had some interesting – and a lot of people forget this Yankees team – this had, they had a lot of offense. They had Mattingly had uh, yeah. a huge season, drove in 145 runs. You had Ricky Henderson, his first season in the Bronx. Uh, Dave Winfield, uh, always a, a favorite whipping boy of uh, George Steinbrenner, another solid yep. season. Uh, Dom Baylor, the DH. And uh, Ron Guidry, you know, not 1977, nine, not 1978 Ron Guidry, but a Ron Guidry that won 22 games, gets overshadowed by Doc. Uh, you have Phil Necro in the rotation, and then the bullpen. The Yankee bullpen was really good with Dave Rigetti and Neil Allen, a former Met. 
Um, you know, like I said, this is a Mets-centric show, and, and everybody remembers the 86 Mets, and 85 was that season that you, you remember that great pennant race with the Cardinals. But the Yankees are overlooked, but they're a really good team, and a team that uh, in a lot of ways you could argue may have been better than the Mets. Uh, you know, it be, I mean, 839 runs scored in that era. That's, uh, that's 90s turn-of-the-century type of run scoring, if you think about it, pre-steroids era, if, if you will. Yeah, the Yankees' offense was was really it was sort of a, a juggernaut, and, and the guys that you mentioned. You have two Hall of Famers there in Ricky and Winfield. You have two other guys in Mattingly and Baylor that some people might argue or might be Hall of Fame candidates. And then you have guys like a Mike Pagliarulo, uh, who was just sort of up and coming at that time and showing some power. And then you sort of have the steady the, the steady hand of Willie Randolph there as well, uh, who could help set the table. I mean, the, the offense was great. The, the offense was great for a good portion of the 80s. The Yankees' problem was that they were always short on pitching. Um, they had Gidry. They had Negro. And then after that, it was really a question mark. Joe Cowley was this kind of flaky guy who threw too many balls and drove Billy Martin crazy and drove his teammates crazy because he was this weird kind of guy. I think most baseball fans are somewhat aware of the story of Ed Whitson and the issues he had in New York. And so at the end of the day for the Yankees, the issue was really pitching. And uh, for the Mets, it was the opposite. The Mets uh, were stacked with pitching uh, and their offense just went through these periods during the season where nothing would happen uh, for weeks at a time, even though they had Carter and Foster and Strawberry. Uh, they just had these long streaks of, of uh, without power, without driving and runs. Uh, and, and ultimately, it was their undoing. Um, and as you point out, the Yankees and Mets were the third and fourth best teams in baseball uh, in that season. The Mets third, the Yankees fourth. The only two teams that were better than them just happened to be the teams that were in their divisions, in the Cardinals and the Blue Jays. If we had the system now that we had back then, the Yankees would have been the first wild card by more than 10 games. It wouldn't even have been close. And the Mets would have run away with the division because the Cardinals would have been in the Central. And uh, they both would have made the playoffs, but that's not how it was back then, and, and we never got to see it. No, uh, absolutely not. We did not, and that's you know that's a shame because in the '80s you would have had a few more uh, Mets and Yankees postseasons. Chris Donnelly, author author of a, a great new book, whether you're a Mets fan or a Yankees fan, Doc Donnie the Kid and Billy Brawl: How the 1985 Mets and Yankees Fought for New York's Baseball Soul. Uh, a lot of people remember the Stump Merrill Yankees, and then the '90s Yankees, and they remember the '86 Mets. But uh, like Chris said, this is where they kind of meet in the middle. Now, what's, what's interesting is that you have two managers here, Billy Martin and Davey Johnson, uh, both uh, characters in their own way. But Billy did not start the year as the manager. So you have Yogi Berra gets fired after 16 games, and that doesn't get reconciled until 1999. Well, it was 14 mm -hmm. years later. The Cone Perfect Game, which was celebrated just recently, uh, was that, you know, I guess reconciliation that day. Uh, there yep. was the uh, a couple of guys getting thrown at at home, Bobby Meacham, the Columbus Shuttle. I mean, the Yankees have a ton. I mean, I'm looking at the roster now. I mean, up and down, up and down. So many names here on the uh, on the roster. The Mets with Davey Johnson. You know, Davey was a bombastic guy. This is before he made that, you know, we're going to dominate uh, comment. But you got Carter coming in, changing the face of the franchise. Uh, you have a lot of little intersecting personalities that if, if, if the both teams were in social media that day, you know, who's better, Hernandez or Mattingly? You could have that debate. Right. And then Strawberry, who's the better young player? You have Strawberry. You have a guy like Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson is, at that time, only 26 years old. 
uh, and well on his way to a Hall of Fame career. Maybe a, a player not appreciated at the same level that we would appreciate him today in the uh, sabermetric era. Um, you know, and then he forgot about Dave Winfield, a really, really good hitter that um, always seemed to be underappreciated in New York. So many different storylines on both sides, and not to mention the uh, the biggest one, which is Doc Gooden and his great season, a season that he never was able to repeat. So amazing how many stories that you probably were able to dive into while you were writing this book. Yeah, it was just, it, it was really one thing after another and so many different angles that, that I had to look at. And uh, I mean, that's, that's not even talking about the July 4th game in Atlanta for the Mets, which is one of the craziest, if, if not the craziest regular season baseball game in, in history. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was one thing after another that you had to look into and, and even, even small stuff like how the Yankees uh, w- would shortchange pitchers. There was, there was a strike in baseball that year it lasted only two days, but there was a strike and the Yankees had a guy named Mike Armstrong um, who, they decided to uh, – uh, they basically toyed with him during the strike, and they decided to call him up so that he would be a striking player, even though they weren't going to use him. They called him up the day before the strike so that they didn't have to pay him his salary. And then as soon as the strike was over, they sent him back down, and, and he then joined the long list of people who said, you know what, I don't want to play here anymore. Uh, and that list included Ken Griffey Sr., uh, who repeatedly said he was unhappy in New York and – George would fight back and say, well, we can't trade you. You make too much money. Nobody wants to pay a million dollars for a guy hitting 270 or 260 or whatever he was hitting at the time. And then you would come to find out later that George actually had a trade in hand for Griffey at some point during the season, but he decided not to pull the trigger. So at the end of the day, George was kind of full of it a little bit. And, and I mean, these just happened over and over and over again. And if you were a Yankee fan at the time, it, it just became tiring uh, not only was the team not winning like the Bronx Zoo era, but every day it was a soap opera. And that's why, to me, these teams are much more interesting from an entertainment value than the Bronx Zoo teams. I think it was far crazier what happened in the mid-'80s, especially in 85, uh, with Billy fighting Ed Whitson and Billy sending Mike Pallarulo to bat right-handed, even though he was a lefty. Billy scratching his nose, which is unintentionally a, a, a pitch-out sign. Um, and then they didn't realize that Billy was just scratching his nose, that he wasn't really giving the sign. I mean, these things just go on and on and on. And then the Mets were, they did not have a lot of controversy in 85 and whatever small controversies they did have, they really put to bed immediately. Uh, and that's what made them kind of endearing. And all the things we know about that 86 team, the, the drinking, the partying and the scum bunch and the fighting uh, and that tough guy attitude. I mean, that all started in 85. All of that was born in 1985 and carried over into 86. I'll throw you another name that both of these, and and I've read this and maybe you did and and you correct me if I'm wrong, but both the Mets and the Yankees uh, were going after some reinforcements. And one of those names that comes up is Tom Seaver, who won his 300th game at Yankee stadium, almost was a Yankee that year. And there was, I was recently reading a column back from then that where the Mets were thinking about trading Terry Blocker, one of their prospects who got a, a cup of coffee there on the Mets in 85 for Seaver. But I guess Frank Cashin looked at that rotation, saw some of the young guys like Sid Fernandez and Rick Aguilera. He had a veteran in Eddie Lynch already there, you know, good and darling, and he decided to just, you know, move away from that. Would have been interesting to see. One scenario is Seaver coming back, pitching the Yankees into the postseason in a Yankee uniform. That was something that George loved, and he did a lot of in the 90s, not so much here yep. in 85. Um, or, or the Mets bringing Seaver back 
again for a third time, and this time Seaver pitching meaningful games that he missed out on in 84 and so on. And, and we know he pitched for the Red Sox the following year, and he almost pitched again for the Mets in 87 when they had a bunch of pitching inju- injuries, but he was done. You might have yep. been able to squeeze the last bit of juice in 85 out of Seaver. Both of these teams are in on that guy. I don't, I don't know if you uh, have any, had anything about that, but that was something interesting that I had researched and saw when I was uh, looking back at that season. Yeah, I mean, Seaver still had something left in the tank in 85. And uh, I think, as, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, he came back to the Mets for a second time in 83. The Mets wanted to keep him, um, but they, they lost him through just sort of a series of mishaps um, that never really sat well with the team um, because he still was a quality pitcher and he still could have helped out. And it makes you wonder where they would have been maybe in 1984 when they fell a few games short of the Cubs uh, if, if he could have helped them. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that they would think about getting him back, um, especially with the, with just his history with the team and with the Yankees. I mean, this George was always looking for the big name to, to, to bring in throughout that 85 season. If it was a marquee name or player or future hall of famer, George wanted him. They tried to get Ozzy Smith. They tried to get Tom Seaver. They tried to get Carlton Fisk. Uh, they tried to get a guy like Darrell Evans, who was leading the league in home runs at the time. And, of course, they tried to get Ken Phelps that year, and then they ended up getting him three years later. Um, so he was preparing, he was always trying to get Ken Phelps, apparently, until he finally got him. Um, but they, they tried trading for Seaver. George was friends with the White Sox owner. Uh, they made uh, about a million trades in the 1980s. They tried working out something for Seaver. They couldn't do it. And then actually in that offseason, they worked out a trade for Carlton Fisk, and Fisk refused to report to New York, and so he stayed with Chicago. Uh, and just sort of, sort of like a funny aside, the Mets, excuse me, the Yankees traded Ron Hassey, their one of their catchers, to the White Sox uh, just after the off season started, and then a couple of months later, the White Sox traded right back to the Yankees. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, he didn't even stay with the team until. And that's just, that's just kind of the. I mean, that's just how it was for the Yankees in the '80s. It was chaotic. It made very little sense. George was about. He was about names. Um, he he really was not a baseball guy um, in the sense of looking at the game, understanding the game, knowing what works. He, he was a name guy. He was an entertainer, sort of. Uh, he understood the value of, of the marquee. Uh, and that's why he made so many of the moves that we saw in, in the 80s that were really the Yankees undoing in the end. Totally depleted the farm system and left them with nothing by 1990. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, it's one of those things where it's just hard, not hard, but It'd be great to imagine Tom Seaver coming back to the Mets or the Yankees down that stretch run and and getting one of them into the playoffs. I mean, I'm sure for Mets fans, it would have made their head explode if it was the Yankees. But at the end of the day, he comes back to New York as a White Sox and wins his 300th game at Yankee Stadium. Uh, So that was a nice little sort of uh, screw you for Mets fans to the Yankees, even though he was doing it in a White Sox uniform. And as I write in the book, it's something that drove uh, George Steinbrenner crazy. The fact that people in Yankee Stadium were cheering for Tom Seaver as if they were at Shea Stadium drove him nuts, and he unleashed on Billy Martin after the game about him. Yeah, and he, and he I remember talking to Marty Appel about, and I'm looking at the attendance numbers, Mets drew 2.7 uh, million, Yankees drew 2.2. That's still very good numbers for back then. Um, yep. But George messing around with the attendance and things like that. So, um, <laughs> yep. Wild, wild times. I'll tell you what, uh, moving over to the, the National League here, because there's the teams that beat them out uh, that don't really – I mean, the Cardinals didn't win the World Series. It was the Dick Hauser, former Yankees manager, Royals winning. Yep. 
uh, behind Brett Saberhagen. But that Cardinals team, 87 home runs. I'm laughing because uh, uh, you know Aaron Judge, will, uh, you know, hit 54 home runs a couple of years ago. Right. The Cardinals right. team hit 87 <clears throat> home runs, 22 of them by Jack Clark, another 10 by a guy named Daryl Porter. But they led the National League in scoring. Uh, 110 uh, RBIs for Tommy Hurd with only eight home runs. Uh, the stolen base uh, was in vogue, 110 by Vince Coleman. Uh, that was a plucky little team, and I always am curious. You throw in this era of launch angle and home runs and no more mm-hmm. turf, and if there is turf, it's the uh, the new modern good kind of turf, not the plastic yeah. one that you see at the old Bush Stadium. Um, you wonder how how a team like this would transpire today, and and could they be like the market inefficiency? It's just amazing as I'm looking at the names and looking at the numbers. You take a stratomatic team, throw the Cardinals, replace them with this year's Cardinals, throw them in the National League, you know, or throw them in the American League, and and it'd be interesting to see how a team like this would 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 translate with the modern game. Yeah, I've I was wondering over the last couple of years as I was writing the book and you're looking at the Cardinals and even the Blue Jays to some extent, they played on turf too. And they had guys in the outfield like Lloyd Mosby and Jesse Barfield who had some pop, but they also stole bases. And I've always wondered if this sort of team existed now, I mean, if everybody else is doing analytics, if they went against the grain and did it on their own, would that work? Would they be successful? But I, I mean, as you point out, things are different now. There are no, uh, turf stadiums, uh, you know, the concrete kind of turf stadiums. And so you just don't get the hops and the plays that you had uh, at Bush Stadium. Um, but it's <laughs> looking at their numbers, it's remarkable. And really the only guy on the team that didn't run in 85 was Jack Clark. Jack Clark was, was the power. Um, but you look at a guy like Vince Coleman, who has 100-plus stolen bases. You look at Willie McGee, who was the MVP that year, who didn't hit for power but was sort of this – string bean of a guy who had this great speed and would hit the ball in the gap. And if you hit the ball in the gap at Bush Stadium and you have even a little bit of speed, you're talking a double and a triple. Uh, I mean, it was exciting stuff, and the Cardinal fans ate it up. And it's hard to fathom with what we're seeing now and, and with the Twins having already <laughs> having already hit over 200 home runs. Um, and we're just, just starting really the second half of the season. Uh, it's incredible to think that a team could win that way, but but they did. They did, and, and I mean, I'm sure some people in St. Louis would tell you that they they should have been the world champions that year, if if not for Don Denkinger. Um, and to think that a team that did not hit with any sort of power whatsoever, and you're talking about a home one home run every two games, but stole over 300 bases, to think that they could go that far, uh, it just makes you wonder if we will ever see something like that in the game again. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, the Blue Jays might be the best team of them all because they had a really good staff. And they could score at the same level almost as the Yankees, and they don't even make the World Series. But that was the beginning of the expansion team, 77, only eight years in. Now they're contenders. Uh, Dave Steeb, a very underrated pitcher during the 80s. Actually, you had Mm -hmm. only a 500 record, but pitched a hell of a lot better than that. Good bullpen led by Tom Hankey. Uh, They would not win a World Series for another seven years, and they had a lot of disappointments in the 80s. It makes you wonder in this day and age where you know there's such a short rope, free agency, arbitration, big salaries. The Blue Jays are the kind of team that you know they'd be looking to rip them apart after three years in '88 or '89 before this thing got <laughs> yeah. good because they were disappointments. But uh, you know the Yankees—they just ran into the wrong team that year. The Red Sox were kind of a one-year wonder, 
the Blue Jays probably were the more sustainable one. Surprising that they didn't win consecutively more divisions. They had the Red Sox interrupt them a couple of times, and, and it was almost like the Blue Jays were the sustainably built team, not the Sox. Yeah, the Blue Jays were similar. The, the Blue Jays, I would say, were the American League equivalent of the Mets throughout the mid to late 80s. They were the team that was more or less, maybe with the exception of 86, constantly good throughout the years. Um, and they played in this really awful stadium <laughs> in Toronto, an exhibition stadium. It was a converted football field, really. Um, but again, they used the turf like the Cardinals to, to their advantage. They had a ridiculously good pitching staff and bullpen. You point out Dave Steve, who really is truly underrated, had one of the best sliders in baseball, was a real dominating pitcher throughout the 80s and, and a bit of the early 90s. Um, but yeah, this was sort of the Blue Jays coming out party. And this was an announcement that they, they had really finally made it, and that they were going to be perennial contenders throughout the rest of the decade. Um, and they continued to excel and build on that while the Yankees sort of fell apart. And when you look at the roster they had in E5, I mean, that, that is a good, good team that they had up there, like I said, with Lloyd Mosby, George Bell, and Jesse Barfield. I mean, if that was just it alone, that outfield would, would be almost enough uh, for most teams to, to uh, win ball games. But they were just a great team all around. And again, it's unfortunate for the Yankees and the Mets that they happened to be in the two divisions they were in because the Blue Jays and Cardinals were the only teams who were better than them that year. And it's not even close in terms of the other teams, as I mentioned earlier. The Mets would have run away with the, with the division if, if the Cardinals were in the East. And the Yankees were, I believe it was 12 games better than uh, the next closest team, not, not including the Kansas City Royals. And I think if you talk to a lot of Yankees, They'll, they'll tell you that um, it was disappointing to see Kansas City win it in the end because they did not consider Kansas City a great team. Uh, the, the Blue Jays were a great team. They thought the Royals, you know, 90-something wins, really not that great, but sometimes it's just the way it goes. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of things before we wrap up. We have Chris Donnelly with us, uh, author of the book Doc Donnie and the Kid and Billy Brawl, how the 1985 Mets and Yankees fought for New York's baseball soul. Uh, all right, so let's pretend that we'll do rapid fire here. You and I are 1985. Um, <laughs> we're going to do like silly debate. Uh, Hernandez sure. or Mattingly, what do you think the debate would look like in 1985? You know, uh, Hernandez and Mattingly. Hernandez, the veteran, won an MVP in 79, better defensively, you know, not a home run hitter, but doesn't have the short porch and right. Hernandez or Mattingly in 1985? I am going with the American League MVP and saying Don Mattingly. Yep, I, 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 you know what, and that's fair. Um, and they had very similar careers. I, I'll tell you another thing yeah. that might come up. Uh, you know, people say, "Oh, Doc, really great." You know, twenty-four and four. But uh, you know, Gidry's the Wiley veteran. He's been there before. You know, not that you can really compare yeah. Gidry and Doc. Uh, and I'll tell you what, John Tudor had a really good year too. Gets <laughs> overlooked. Uh, yeah, Twenty-one yeah. and eight, one point nine three. Uh, it's amazing. Out of those three, those guys. I mean, uh, Doc is electric, but. I mean, geez, uh, when you when you look at it, you know, Ron Guidry had a great year. So that might be another debate. You know, Guidry, the veteran, uh, you know, the Yankee fans might say, I'd rather have him in a big spot in the postseason. Yeah, I I mean, and this is a Yankee fan myself. I can understand that argument, but I, I will have to take Dwight Gooden on that one because uh, that 85 season is something – it was just incredible. It's one of the greatest individual 
uh, starting pitching performances in baseball history, not not just the 80s, not just after the expansion era, but, I mean, of all time. He was so ridiculously dominating that year. And you can probably say this about a couple of pitcher seasons, right? I, look, if you look back, Bob Walsh won 27 games in 1990. If you go back and look, I'm sure you could find three games where if something had gone his way, he could have gotten a 30 wins. I think you can do that for a couple of seasons. But with Doc Gooden, it is not a stretch to say that if the Mets had just had a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more pop in their lineup, that Doc would could have won 30 plus games. And just to give you a quick example of that, in September, so when most pitchers should sort of be tailing off, tiring from from wear during the season, he pitched two games where he went nine innings and gave up no runs and still got a no decision. Yep. Uh, and he, I, he, I mean, he was just in crazy that year. So I, I go Dwight. Yep, and I'll tell you, I think Doc overshadowed a lot of other storylines from that season, that 24-4. and four. Great season. I mean, we've talked about it, um, you know, especially with DeGrom and the season he had last year. But I almost yep. feel like the season was so much more than Doc's 24-4 and four for both teams. I just think he overshadowed yeah. so much. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if you took that away while you were doing the book. I mean, I think – I think there it's a little bit hard because so much happened that year that um, you you sort of have to focus on something. Uh, and I think Doc is the easiest and probably the best thing to focus on because of the dominance. Um, you could pick a lot of things out from that year. And I think another part of this is that we didn't see it again from him. I mean, it's something I try not to dwell on too much in the book. I didn't want this to be about, sort of the expectations that never happened from fans or from players. I wanted to be about enjoying what that was when it was happening. Um, but if Doc had gone on to win 20 games three more times and then had the career that most people thought was going to happen, maybe it wouldn't be that. But I think because we had that one magical season and then we had a lot of good seasons and then we had some not so good seasons. I think that's why people really look back and think about that in 85. All right, last thing. So here's the, this is the rub. Let's let's play a fictitious situation. If the Mets sure. and Yankees did meet in that World Series, uh, <laughs> and that would mean that would mean yeah. the American League would have the home field. So the Yankees would have home field at Yankee Stadium. How do you think that turns out? You did the research. See, I think it's a toss up. I think it'd be a really good series. Uh, and I'm a Mets fan, so I'm telling you that yeah. I think it's a real toss-up. But give me, you know, you're the author. I'm going to give you the final. You're going to you're going to do the the tiebreaker <laughs> here. Uh, you know, who wins that series? Man, is it a cop out if I say I really don't know who wins that? Because uh, I, you know I, I I really don't. Well, let me put it to you this way. I think the 2000 Subway Series, which which was a great five games, but but I think ultimately the Yankees were the better team. Not I mean not literally because they won, but I just think they were a better team all around than the 2000 Mets. I don't know the answer to that for the 85 season because how does that Mets dominating pitching stack against the Yankees dominating offense? Does the Mets somewhat sluggish offense tee off against the Yankees? Uh, you know, not so great pitching after Negro and Gidry, uh, or does the the does the Joe Callies and the Edwitzes of the world find a way to beat the Mets? I mean, it's it, it's unfortunate that we'll never get to know. There would have been so many incredible storylines if you had had a game one uh, at Yankee Stadium with Dwight Gooden going up against, say, Phil Negro, who started in the major leagues before Dwight was even born, uh, and who of course threw the knuckleball 
right? And it's this white guy from from rural Ohio going up against, you know, the the black kid from Tampa who throws a hundred miles an hour. I mean, the stories coming out of that series would have been incredible. It would have been incredible. I mean, we never got to see Don Mattingly hit against Dwight Gooden, and that that just would have been remarkable. Or Daryl, who was a great knuckleball pitcher, hit against Phil Negro. And so I I am not trying to uh, be coy here or or. I honestly don't know the answer. I think we probably would have had a six or seven game series that would have given thousands of New Yorkers a heart attack. Uh, but ultimately, I don't know who comes out on top of that. I don't think George lasts the seven games. He's seen Billy Martin getting angry. He'd make some kind of be some kind of, uh, you know, back, you know, if you look at Charlie Finley and the, uh, Mike Andrews making the error and he's trying to demote him in the middle of the World Series. You could see something like that <laughs> happening. Uh, and Billy Martin and, and Davey Johnson, obviously, he would have. He would have tried to make it uh, where, hey, we're about to take over New York. It would have been fascinating, and the possibilities are endless. So, um, look, this is a great project here. Uh, the fans uh, obviously could check you out at uh, cdonnelly81 on uh, Twitter. Uh, give us some information where they could find the book, uh, interact with you, all that fun stuff. Sure. So the book's available. You can get it, of course, on Amazon. You can find it at Barnes & Noble, uh, also at the website of my publisher, University of Nebraska Press. Uh, feel free to interact with me on Twitter. You can direct message me or, or just tweet at me. Uh, I'm happy to talk or answer any questions about the book or just about the Yankees or the Mets or baseball in general. Hey, you got Lenny Dykstra following you on Twitter. That must be an experience. Has he at least has uh, he tweeted at you about the book? <laughs> he has not. So it's uh, Lenny and David Cohen started following me on the same day, and this was right after the latest. I mean, this was right after the the whole Ron Darling and Lenny stuff was happening, uh, and so I was somewhat concerned when he started following me. <laughs> I, I didn't know where that might lead, uh, but I have I have not heard from him. Uh, but but hey, if he's listening and, and wants to send me a tweet talk baseball, I'd be happy to. Chris, uh, loved catching up with you about the 85 season just as much as I love catching up with you about the 95 Yankees Mariners series. Be well. Uh, I'm looking forward to your next project. Keep in touch, and uh, let's do this again, all right, my friend? Sounds good, Mike. I'll talk to you again in about nine years for the next project. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Chris Donnelly. Thanks, man. Dr. Chris Donnelly, at uh, cdonnelly81 on uh, Twitter, the book uh, Doc Donnie. The Kid and Billy Brawl, how the 85 Mets and Yankees fought for New York's baseball soul. Hope you enjoyed uh, looking back at the 85 season and having some fun. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. It's by Dwight Gooden, who is without a doubt the most awesome weapon in the Mets pitching arsenal. Gooden led the league in six pitching categories, including wins with 24, strikeouts with 268, and an ERA of 1.53. At one point, White went three months and 14 straight wins without a loss and became the youngest pitcher ever to win 20 games. Simply put, every time Gooden pitched, everyone stopped to watch. Great stuff. I wish I could get more into my thoughts about 85, but all I'll tell you is this, because we've already gone way above the hour, and I, I don't want to keep you guys anymore. All I can tell you is uh, it would have been fun to see Doc pitch at Yankee Stadium that year, battling Mattingly, the press, 
even though it was in a non-social media era, uh, Steinbrenner in his peak. Even though in 2000 he was Steinbrenner, he still he had titles under his belt. He had Tory, Billy Martin, Steinbrenner, Davy. That's all different combustible personalities. It would be absolutely fantastic. And who do I think would win? It would be a good series. I got to tell you, I don't think the Mets would romp. Uh, you know, when you have Winfield and Ricky Henderson and Don Mattingly and even guys like Mike Pagliarulo uh, and Ron Hassey, uh, Ken Griffey, Don Baylor, who are uh, pretty good hitters in their own right. That's a formidable lineup. Uh, Dave Rigetti was a really good closer. Uh, Jesse Orozco struggled that year. McDowell was young. Doug Sisk had issues. Uh, I remember talking to Doug myself, and he said his, his arm was killing him that year. So it would have been a tough series. Uh, I don't know if the Mets would have won that one. You would, here, here's what I would say. If Doc pitched in the postseason like he pitched in the 86, the Mets probably wouldn't win because they would really need him to be dominant. And he had uh, an Oral Hershiser-type September, so maybe he could have rode that into October just like uh, Hershiser did a couple of years later. But um, it would not necessarily, because of Doc, be the Mets. I think that that would have been a real interesting situation. And, and Chris Donnelly's book is a, is a must-read for you guys. Take a step back, especially if you lived during that time. I was eight years old, a little bit too young for me to remember, but um, I'm sure there's those of you in the audience that remember that season viv- vividly, so check out Chris Donnelly's book and have some fun, and, and I want to thank uh, Chris Donnelly for uh, joining us here on the podcast. Hey, we're out of time. I want to thank all of you for your participation, whether it be in the mailbag or for listening. Of course, you could check out this show and all other shows at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. Be well, and we'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Take care, everybody. you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write. 
so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.